let's talk about a permanent, indestructible sign left by Mary showing the proof of the gospel. Welcome to the Catholic Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Heschmeyer, and I'm here today with Dr. Mike Shears. Like, Mike, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it's an absolute blessing to be here. So, Mike is the founder and president of Holy Family School of Faith, the organization for which I work. He's also taught extensively uh, Catholic catechesis and discipleship, and he has a special place in his heart, uh, as we can see from his hat right now, for our Lady of Guadalupe. This season, during Easter, we're doing the physical case for Catholicism. So we're looking at tangible signs for the truth of the faith. And this is a big one, and one that I think we can relate. Uh, the devil didn't seem to want us doing. So we decided a few weeks ago to do Our Lady of Guadalupe. And uh, shortly thereafter, Mike announced that he was going down to Guadalupe. You want to share a few of the details about that trip? What brought you down there? Well, first of all, a very clear call from Our Lady to come and be with her to spend time with her. But also, we have a, a ministry of discipleship with Catholic doctors in the Kansas City metro area, the Catholic Medical Association. We wanted them to meet Our Lady so that she would take them to Jesus, but also to bring them to the poorest of the poor in circumstances worse than Calcutta so that they could meet Jesus in the poor. So we took Catholic doctors to meet Jesus through Mary, and to meet Jesus in the poor. That's excellent. So we actually tried to record this talk last week to uh, release it now a week ago, because um, by the time you hear this, it'll be Monday, <laughs> the Feast of Mary, Mother of the Church, the newest feast on the Church's calendar. But when we tried to record uh, by phone from Guadalupe, we kept being thwarted. So every call I would receive, other than ones from Mike, I'd be able to receive. Mike's would continually go straight to machine for reasons that were totally inexplicable. It really reinforced, I think, the need that we need to do this. That this is something in which the enemy of the woman, the serpent, doesn't uh, doesn't want this message known. And as you were relating, this is a message that too few Americans know in the first place. As I sat in the shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe, it was jam packed. There were hundreds of thousands of people there each day. Not one American. No Europeans, no Canadians. How is it that a three-hour flight from Kansas City and no one's there? Where, as we'll discuss, there is a permanent, virtually indestructible, supernatural sign. So let's talk about that sign. Tell us a little bit about the history of the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Well, it really begins with the Aztec people who were held in a bondage, a cult of human sacrifice, more bloodthirsty than Isis could ever dream up, in which the Aztec people worshipped demonic forces represented, they worshipped the serpent god represented by the crescent moon, and they worshipped the god of war represented by the sun. And they were convinced that these two gods, the sun god and the crescent moon god, demanded human sacrifice. And if they didn't, if these gods didn't receive this human sacrifice, there would be a divine retribution in plagues and floods and pestilence. So they perpetrated war. The Aztecs perpetrated war on the tribes around them to steal people to then offer in human sacrifice. Well, just in terms of the scale of the human sacrifice, we're not talking about like one sacrifice a year or once every 20 years. We're talking about daily human sacrifice on a scale unbelievable. 50,000 annually. And according to their own records, in one four-day period in 1487, more than 80,000. Wow. But they also sacrificed one out of every five of their children, which it's unimaginable how barbaric a society could be. And then we realize we abort one out of every five of our children. I wonder what the cultures 500 years from now will say about us. It's equally unimaginable that a culture that views itself as, you know, progressive and, and favoring human rights would permit that level of atrocity. I think you're right to say this, this is not a, a thing we're going to be judged kindly for. No. And it was into this barbaric situation that 
Cortez came. Cortez sent as a conquistador, an emissary of the, the Spanish government, comes to the New World, to what is now Mexico. And as he and his men are traveling inward from the coast, they're hearing tales of this human sacrifice. And when they reach Mexico City, they come face to face with the most horrendous thing, more horrendous than they could ever imagine. And Cortez writes in his own log that had to be sent back to the king that when he and his men encountered this, they wanted to flee. For whatever reason that Cortez initially came to Mexico, he became convinced that God sent him to put an end to this human sacrifice. But his men were so afraid that Cortez scuttled the ships. Just making it impossible to... He sunk all their ships so that they would have no no escape. They would have to, with courage, a supernatural courage, they would have to face this demonic savagery and put an end to it. I mean, it's probably worth mentioning the scale here. This is not an even fight where like two equal-sized armies show up. You have a country of a million people, and you've got about 900 conquistadors. This is a number that I've read. So, I mean, you've got a small contingent. What's helpful, certainly, for Cortez and his band, is that the surrounding native peoples hate the Aztecs so much that they're willing to say, we don't know who you are, but you're not going to be worse than the guys that we've been living next door to. And so they fought their way into Mexico City to the Temple of the Sun, and they put an end to the human sacrifice and, and outlawed this demonic, literally demonic, religion. The problem was that the Spanish government placed Nuno de Guzman as the governor of the country, not Cortez. And de Guzman was a vicious tyrant who enslaved thousands of the indigenous people, shipping them to Caribbean colonies. Thankfully, he was finally arrested for treason and abuse of power and mistreatment and taken in shackles back to Spain in 1537, but the damage was done. Why would the indigenous people want to accept the religion of, of those who had enslaved them. So even though Franciscan priests, missionaries came, there were very few converts, except for a, a few very important. Let's talk about one of those. Yes, uh, Juan Diego. Juan Diego, and I love this because so often Our Lady appears to children and I'll be 50 next week, and I feel a little bit left out, but here... It's actually, by the time this podcast records, it is your 50th birthday, so happy birthday, Mike. (laughs) So in in Juan Diego, uh, those of us who are 50 and above uh, have some consolation. Uh, Juan Diego was one of the few Aztec people who had converted to Catholicism. He was, as I said, 57-year-old widower. He was on December 9th, 1531 running seven miles into Mexico City to go to morning mass and catechism class. Wow, that's a good uh, reminder for those of us who find it hard to go two miles in a car because it's too much effort. And I haven't found anybody who will run seven miles for my my catechetical classes. But on this morning of December 9th, 1531, as as Juan is running into the city, uh, he's passing by a number of hills before he comes to the main causeway. Mexico City was built in the middle of a giant lake that had four causeways that went into the city. As he's passing by Tepeyac Hill, he hears the most glorious singing. And he, it causes him to slow to a jog and then a walk. And he, he turns and he looks and he sees this beautiful young woman beckoning to him. And so he approaches, he falls to his knees, and the woman speaks to him and says, My son, Juan Diego, where are you going? Uh, I'm, I'm going into catechism class. To which she responds, Know for certain, littlest of my sons, that I am the perfect and perpetual Virgin Mary, mother of the true God, through whom everything lives, the Lord of all things near and far, master of heaven and earth. And I wish and intensely desire that in this place my sanctuary be erected. Here I will demonstrate, I will exhibit, and I will give all my love, my compassion, my help, and my protection to the people. I am your merciful mother. 
the merciful mother of all who live united in this land, and of all mankind, of all those who love you. Here I will hear their weeping, their sorrow, and will remedy and alleviate all their multiple sufferings, necessities, and misfortunes. And so that my intentions may be made known, you must go to the house of the Bishop of Mexico and tell him that I sent you, and that I, it is my desire to have a church built here. I'm sure at this point, Juan isn't really sure if this is real or a dream, but he runs into Mexico City, goes to the bishop's residence. The servants make him wait most of the day. Finally, he gets a brief audience with the bishop and says to the bishop, uh, the mother of God just appeared to me and she wants a church built seven miles outside of town. And I'm sure the bishop was just like, oh, sure, in that case, absolutely. I mean, if you, random person I've never met before, uh, say that you've met the mother of God. I mean, imagine what the bishop had to be thinking in this situation. Precisely. So he sends him away. Juan heads home, I'm sure confused, uh, not knowing what's next. And as he passes by Tepeyac Hill again, there she is. And immediately he begins explaining, I don't know who you are for sure, but if you want this done, you've got to send somebody more important. And I love what Juan says here, his humility. He says, because I'm a nobody, I'm a small rope, a tiny ladder, the tail end, I'm just a leaf. It's a beautiful image of smallness. Yet, Our Lady's words, Juan, I could choose anybody, but I've chosen you. Go and tell the bishop that I in person, the ever-virgin Holy Mary Mother of God, send you. I have chosen you. And I think this is so important for us because we always feel inadequate. Who am I? I can't have some mission for God. And Our Lady says the same thing to us. I could choose anybody. I choose you. Now go. So the next day, Saturday, December 10th, Juan dutifully, and here we see that she Whatever she asks, Juan is willing to do. There's an openness to Juan. Why does, why does Our Lady choose Juan Diego? Not because he's powerful, not because he's particularly intelligent or connected, because he's willing. Maybe this is all Our Lady needs from us. Just a willing heart. Just A sort of fiat. A yes. <laughs> exactly. All we have to do is say yes. So he goes back to the bishop and... This time the bishop says, okay, if it's the mother of God, go tell her I want a sign. So Juan runs home again, and there she is waiting. Third apparition, Sunday afternoon, December 10th. And he explains, the bishop demands a sign. What, what do you want me to do? And she assures him, don't worry. Come back tomorrow. I'll have your sign. Well, that evening when Juan gets home, he finds his elderly uncle is dying. He's, he cares for his uncle. He's his caregiver, and he's dying. He gets the village doctors, and they say there's nothing we can do. It gets worse through the night. So he blows off his appointment with the mother of God. It's, I mean, when you hear that, it's, it's incredible. You think, how could you possibly stand up to mother of God? And then just think about all the times you skip out on the rosary or skip out on times of prayer or avoid going to Mass and think like, oh, I skipped out on God. <laughs> Which is such a good point because even though there are times where we may blow her off or skip out, she's still waiting for us. Mm -hmm. And all we yes. have to do is turn back. And even when we, sometimes when we try to avoid her like Juan, so the next day, finally Tuesday, December 12th, he's running into Mexico City trying to find a priest to get his uncle last rites. And he's passing by Tepeyac Hill on the west side of the hill where he'd met her before. And he realizes, wait, I can't go this way. She'll be here. and I don't have time for this. <laughs> so he runs around to the east side of the hill and she sees him and she comes down and intercepts him halfway. And he begins to explain to her in a very distressed way. Uh, I, I don't want to disappoint you, but my uncle's dying. She says, Juan, relax. I've got this. He doesn't know it, but at that same moment, she's appearing to his uncle and healing him. And the words of Our Lady at this moment to Juan 
should speak to all of us. She said to him, Hear and let it penetrate into your heart, my dear little son. Let nothing discourage you, nothing depress you. Let nothing alter your heart or your countenance. Am I not here who am your mother? Are you not under my shadow and protection? Am I not your fountain of life? Are you not in the folds of my mantle, in the crossing of my arms? What more do you need? Do not fear any illness or vexation, anxiety or pain. Let not the illness of your uncle afflict you, because he is not going to die now of what he has in himself. Be sure that he will get well. These words, Am I not here who am your mother? These are the words that are right above the entry into the sanctuary. And what a good reminder today, of all days, Mary, mother of the church. So she told Juan to climb to Payak Hill, and there he would find the sign. And he climbed the hill, which is so wonderful. If you go to Mexico City, you go to this spot, you do the same walk, the same steps. And he comes to the top of Tepeyac Hill, December 12th, winter, in the mountains, and he finds roses blooming. But not roses from Mexico, roses from the area of Castile yeah. in Spain. So ones that Bishop would have known. Ones that Bishop would have would have known that had not yet been introduced to Mexico. Not only do roses not bloom on a, a barren mountaintop in December, but not roses from another part of the world. So, it's so beautiful. Our Lady gathers the roses. Now, Juan is wearing what is virtually a blanket. They used for a coat, uh, a blanket, all kinds of things, carry things in, uh, called a tilma, which is made out of cactus fiber that's been woven together, then bleached. It's very coarse, worse than the worst wool you could imagine, uh, like a burlap sack. Our Lady places the roses in the tilma, ties it up around his neck, and then sends him off into Mexico City, Juan thinking the roses are the sign. So he runs back into Mexico City to the bishop's residence, tells the servants, I have the sign from Our Lady. They all want to see this. Gets an audience with the bishop. There are 13 people gathered in the room. Juan unties the tilma, drops the roses. Juan is looking at the roses on the floor when everyone in the room drops to their knees. And then Juan realizes what they're looking at. As the image of the woman who appeared to him begins to develop on his tilma in what we would consider a photograph developing right before their eyes. Yeah, something like an old Polaroid or something. You can kind of imagine that slowly emerging. <laughs> Hopefully, listeners who are at least our age can understand. The bishop gets off his knees, takes the tilma from, from around Juan, places it in his private chapel, and then basically stays there in adoration for two weeks. Incredible. At the end of this, on December 26, 1531, the bishop, in a procession, is taking the tilma to the main basilica, the main church, the cathedral in Mexico City. At the same time, there was a young man who had been shot through the neck and, with an arrow and died, and his family was bringing the body into Mexico City in a funeral procession. When these two processions, the procession of the tilma and this dead man, meet, he rises from the dead. Wow. First miracle of the Tilma. Second miracle of the Tilma. The Tilma <laughs> itself is a miracle. Second miracle, this man rises from the dead. They take the Tilma in, they lay it on the floor of the cathedral in front of the altar, and there it lays on the floor for 116 years. Just laying there with no nothing protecting it. Nothing protecting it. And from that moment, five to 15,000 Aztec people come every day. They see the tilma. They read the image. They understand it exactly. They ask for baptism and they become Catholic. So we're going to talk in a second about what it is they're reading, but what's the end result of that kind of string of conversions? Within just a few short years, 10 million Aztecs convert to Catholicism, 
at the same time that roughly the same number are leaving Catholicism in Europe. Yeah, I, I'm always reminded of the line our Lord has when he says he can raise up sons of Abraham from the very stones. And at the time he says it, think about how abhorrent the Jews viewed the Gentiles. These were these awful pagans who had these demonic gods they were worshiping. And you're telling us that we, who've grown cold-hearted, are going to be replaced by those barbaric pagans. Now, you have to imagine a European in the 16th century would have a very similar reaction to hearing that while he's kind of left because of this kind of middle-class Protestant, you know, Calvinism from a lawyer, or, you know, this rejected monk in Germany, they're being replaced by these awful barbarians who become these amazing Catholics. Yet she said, I am the mother of all. I am the mother of all peoples. That's why we have to introduce all people to her. Just as our Lord promised to make his house a house of prayer for all people. All people. So 10 million people convert. And so many of them, it's because they're actually seeing the image. And as you said, they're reading it. So what is it that they're reading? Tell me a little bit about uh, what, what is it they're seeing here. First, we need to understand that the Aztec people had no written language. Everything was codexes, pictures, images that they could understand. And maybe for our listeners, I would encourage them to pull up an image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And we actually we have this in the show notes. So if you want to go to catpod.com, you can see an image as you're listening to this. The first thing they would see is that this woman, whoever she is, she is, in a sense, blocking out the sun. She's stronger than their sun god of war. Secondly, she's standing on, in a certain degree, causing to submit to her their serpent god represented by the crescent moon. Now, in, in Mexico, the crescent moon is on the bottom of the clock. It's like a U rather like than a like U. a C. It's a U rather than a C. This woman, whoever she is, is greater than their gods. But they realize she's not a god because her hands are clasped in prayer. And they're pointing to the god represented by the cross on her brooch. Tell Jesus. me about that. Yeah, the god represented by a cross on her brooch. And then it's connected as well, if I'm not mistaken, to the belt, right? Well, so they, they realize... She's praying to the one represented by the cross. That's Jesus. But this woman is a virgin. How do we know that? Because young women in the Aztec culture before they're married wear their hair down and parted in the middle. This is how Our Lady of Guadalupe has her hair parted. She's a virgin. Yet she's wearing a maternity belt. She's pregnant. Who is she pregnant with? On the garment, the rose or salmon-colored garment of Our Lady, are all these flowers. But right at, at the place of the womb, there's one distinct flower. The only find it at the womb on this image is the, the jasmine flower, which represents for the Aztec culture the creator of all things. Wow. She's a virgin who's pregnant with the creator of all things. To whom she's praying. To whom she's praying. But we they also know by the teal colored mantle that she's a queen. She's a queen. It's also very profound that she appears as a young woman who's a mixture of Aztec and Spanish blood. It shows it's a, a religion for all people. It's a religion for all people and a mother of unity, uniting these two cultures under the one mother, under the one God, her son, Jesus Christ. They read this immediately and they converted. But then how do millions and millions and millions of others learn about this? There's no podcasts. <laughs> Those who experienced went and told their family and friends. Then how is it that so few people in America know about this? How is it that so few Catholics know about this? How, come, how is it that these 
newly converted devil worshippers become evangelists. And why are we not? Why why are we so timid just to share the story? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, we're we're acting less like these newly converted evangelical believers, and we are like the the people who were frankly replaced, the people who who grow cold, people who grew lukewarm. Now there are there are other things that we've learned about the image that are astonishing. First of all, the the stars on her mantle are not there randomly. They actually are a perfect replica of the constellation of the stars on the morning of December 12th. But not looking from from Earth to the heavens, but looking from heaven down. Wow. And in the constellations, Corona appears on her head like a crown, Virgo over her heart, and Leo over her womb, because she is the mother of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Of Judah. Further, with microscopic studies, recently, in the 1970s and 80s, they've reconfirmed that this image, it's not painted, it's not dyed, there are no brush marks, no sketch marks, and in fact, the image does not even rest on the tilma. It floats above it by three-tenths of a millimeter. That, I mean, sorry, let's just... Can you say that again? Because I think you know, we're kind of mentioning this like this is a normal thing that happens to paintings. You can pass a <laughs> laser between the fibers of the tilma and the image. It floats above it. It does not rest on it. So it's visibly a miracle. It, it's visibly a perpetual miracle. Uh, it, and those who are able to get close to it, they have the sense of being able to put your hand into it like it's 3D. Mm-hmm. Because the image truly rests above it. Wow. Furthermore, with microscopic studies of the entire tumor, when they come to the eyes, they find something that the Aztecs wouldn't even have known about. They find all 13 people that were in the room at the moment that the tilma is manifested, all 13 of those people they find in the eye in the way they're normally represented in the eye, upside down and backwards. Wow. I mean, so we've got an image that at once reminds Christians of Revelation 12, with the woman, you know, she's covered with the sun and standing on the moon with the, the stars. We have an image that speaks the same message in a different way to the Aztecs, and an image that speaks now to the modern, you know, obsession with scientific knowledge. So it's a trilingual miracle. Furthermore, it's virtually indestructible. In the 18th century, once they finally put it in a frame. Yeah. In the 18th century, there was a poor church maintenance worker who was who brought it down, was cleaning the frame with a high-powered acid, spilled the acid all over the, the tilma, began to eat the tilma away. Wow. The church worker was looking distraught, ran away, and the tilma mended itself. Unbelievable. There's, you can still see in the tilma a stain. But it, it, it mended itself. Now, also, most people don't realize that in the 1920s, the Mexican government outlawed Catholicism, were executing thousands and thousands of priests and religious and lay people. They placed a bomb with 29 sticks of dynamite in a flower arrangement in front, in front of the tilma. It exploded. It blew apart the marble altar. The marble floor and the communion rail shattered the windows, shattered the windows and buildings around it, bent over this huge brass crucifix, and yet the tilma was unharmed. How, I mean, I guess how do you even explain this other than just, this is not even a subtle miracle? You, you cannot explain it. All you can do is deny it, similar to the way the Pharisees... Yeah, maybe the guards were... Uh... Fell asleep, maybe they got paid off, maybe they, you know, the disciples came in and stole the body. That kind of, the, the implausibility yeah, of this, the denial. This is the thing. How was it that the Jewish leaders watched Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and then immediately conspired to kill him? Right. Those who, those who refuse to believe no scientific proof is going to help. But 
for anyone of goodwill, which is most people, this will move them. This is why we have to tell people this story, because people of goodwill will be moved. Yeah, if they're open to the possibility that this could have happened, all evidence says that it did in fact happen. And no one goes there. And this is, I mean, I'm reminded of Luke 17, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where he says, even if someone came back from the dead, it wouldn't be enough. They already have Moses and the prophets. And sure enough, Christ rises from the dead, and those who don't want to believe continue not to believe. Now, I have to bring up what I think is the most important aspect of the Tilma of Our Lady of Guadalupe, and it's accentuated with a, a true recent story. A friend of mine, Maria Esther Franco, her husband was originally from Germany. He was, at best, an agnostic, but he was one of the most renowned photographers in Mexico. And he was commissioned by the shrine to to make the digital image that would then be the official image to be reproduced anywhere in the world. He was going frame by frame, taking the image, and when he came to the face and he snapped the picture, he fell off the, the uh, stepladder he was standing on. He began screaming, She's alive! She's alive! She looked at me! He converted, and uh, he, in the last few years, died of stomach cancer. I'm sure he's now with Our Lady in Heaven. I envy him for that. <laughs> he's alive. He's alive. <laughs> yes. But this is the experience of so many people, that when we come into the presence of the Tilma, and I say that we come into the presence because we recognize the presence of Mary. It's not an image that's left of her. It somehow is making her present. She's there. So they, they've had to make a moving walkway in front of the tilma. Because this happens to everybody. They go, they, they see it, and they're transfixed. You can't move. Yeah. It's like a magnet. So people, they pass by the moving walkway, and then they go back. And they, pass, and they keep going back. And then you find some little niche where you can stand still and see her, and you're just stuck there. Because you realize she's present. She's here. But isn't this what she said? Am I not here, who am your mother? And they've built the, the shrine in the form of a mantle. I didn't realize that's what, why it was shaped like that. It's, and they, it's even blue. A blue mantle. Wow. You, you go into the shrine, you can sit in front of this image, and you realize you're under her mantle, you're in her presence, and she will take care of you. The Second Council of Nicaea talks about how even the images of the saints and the images of our Lord, they're not just historical depictions. You know, the whole concept of sacred iconography is that these are like portals, like doorways or windows in which we have a real encounter with the people being depicted. That is, you know, you have this place of encounter. How much more when is it actually an image miraculously produced, miraculously preserved, given by Our Lady herself? Yes. I'm reminded of Hillary Clinton's question when she was down in Mexico. She saw the image, was struck by it, and said, who painted that? And the bishop said, God. <laughs> but we also, we also need to hear Our Lady's words in our heart. Am I not here, who am your mother? She's with us at every moment. The, the image brings this into, it accentuates the reality that we then have to carry with us at every moment. Our Lady is with us at every moment. We're, we just don't foster an awareness of her presence. Now, your PhD was on the connection between Mary and the Holy Spirit. And I know that this is a place where that connection is, is maybe more obvious, more tangible. 
Can you maybe speak a little bit about Guadalupe, Our Lady, and the Holy Spirit, the the connection therein? Well, the shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe and just the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe should raise a question. Why such importance on Mary? Yeah, I mean, I imagine non-Catholic listeners or maybe Catholics who struggle with Mary are hearing this saying, that sounds incredible, but I'm a little uncomfortable. That's Why isn't this an image of Jesus? Why isn't he the one appearing to Tepeyac Hill? And it appears when you're there as a cult, because all these people are coming for the, the this image of Mary and, and not for an image of Jesus. So how do we make sense of this? Why do we give so much importance to Mary? But it hinges on the role of the Holy Spirit, which the Holy Spirit is often the forgotten one. Yeah, we often operate with two-thirds of a trinity. The Holy Spirit. What is the role of the Holy Spirit? It's the role of the Holy Spirit to bring the life of Jesus into our soul and then to transform us to be more and more like Christ. It is the role of the Holy Spirit to bring Jesus to us and us to Jesus. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. On our own, Mary has no power to do this, but the Holy Spirit works with and through Mary to bring the life of Jesus to us, to form his life within us. So we need to understand what's the connection. It all hinges. Our Lady of Guadalupe hinges on the connection between Mary and the Holy Spirit. I think the most important place to begin on Mary and the Holy Spirit is is with Revelation, with Scripture. It's a powerful passage in the wisdom books. It's actually wisdom chapter 7 verse 7 where it says and so I prayed and understanding was given me. I entreated and the spirit of wisdom came to me. I esteemed her more than scepters and thrones. Compared with her I held riches as nothing. I reckoned no priceless stone to be her peer for compared with her all gold is a pinch of sand and beside her silver ranks as mud. I loved her more than health or beauty preferred her to the light, since her radiance never sleeps. In her company all good things came to me, at her hands riches not to be numbered. All these I delighted in, since wisdom brings them. But as yet, I did not know that she was my mother. I want to say something real quick on that. I think Protestant listeners who may be troubled by this are going to now hear wisdom and say, oh, we don't have that in our Bibles. But Proverbs where Lady Wisdom is also described in this feminine way that we both have. Excellent point. Excellent point, Jill. Actually, through all of the wisdom books, Psalms, Proverbs, Wisdom, uh, all of them, Wisdom is, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is described as Wisdom, and the Holy Spirit is described with distinctively feminine, maternal, bridal, and virginal characteristics. But when I read any of these passages from Psalms or Proverbs, and I ask people, who is Scripture speaking about? Catholics say, Mary. And I say, but this, these were written long before Mary came into existence, so they can't be speaking about Mary. Not literally. Right. It's speaking about the Holy Spirit, yet it is describing Mary. That there is a profound relationship between Mary and the Holy Spirit. But let's just leave it at this, that the Holy Spirit is described in the Old Testament with characteristics that are feminine, maternal, bridal, and virginal. And then in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is given a maternal and educative mission. We only always think of the mission of Jesus. We forget about the mission of the Spirit. But the early fathers said that God the Father does everything by his two hands, the Son and the Spirit. We know the mission of the Son. We see how the mission of the Son is manifested. What's the mission of the Spirit? How is it manifested? Well, the mission of the, the Spirit has a maternal and educative mission to form Christ in the world and Christ in souls. We see this at the Annunciation, where it's the Holy Spirit who forms Christ in Mary. But then, with Christians... For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Holy Spirit has a, a maternal and educative mission to form Jesus in 
in our souls and to build up the body of Christ. There is a profound relationship between Mary and the Holy Spirit. There's a profound likeness. Stated very simply, that the Holy Spirit formed Mary to be the perfect human expression of the maternal and educative mission of the Spirit. That the Holy Spirit formed Mary to be the perfect human expression of this maternal and educative mission of the Holy Spirit. And in some way, Mary makes present and powerful, efficacious, this maternal and educative mission of the Holy Spirit. And in a certain sense, we can say Mary is the sacrament of the Holy Spirit. She's the human visible sign that makes this maternal mission of the Spirit present so that the Spirit can form Jesus in us. So in a very real way, when you look at the tilma of Our Lady of Guadalupe, you're seeing the Holy Spirit. Yeah. You're seeing the Holy Spirit. I want to make a couple of points for listeners who may be, maybe this is the first time they've heard this, maybe they're very surprised or shocked by this. I think the first thing we want to say is Mary is totally free. She cooperates with the Holy Spirit. And second, this is part of the Christian message that we become like God. You know, Satan in the garden promised that if they just ate the fruit of the tree, they'd become like God. And he was lying. But Jesus promises to make us like him. And he's telling the truth. Scripture says we'll become partakers of the divine nature. And here, I think this is a good uh, passage to remember. St. Paul says, it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's not saying, I don't have free will anymore. He's saying, when you look at me, you're seeing Christ at work in the world. So too, when you look at Mary, particularly, I think, Our Lady of Guadalupe, where the effect of the incarnation, the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit is so obvious with her womb, with her pregnancy. You're seeing the Holy Spirit's work in the world, as you said, in this more maternal, educative way of forming the body of Christ. I mean, literally, the body of Christ is formed in Mary. And the body of Christ is formed through Mary. It's really a very simple way to see it. It was the Holy Spirit and Mary, and Mary that formed Jesus in her womb. It's the Holy Spirit and Mary who will form Jesus in you. Which leads us to why the church has always proposed consecration to Mary. So for those who don't, can you explain what consecration is? Consecration is very simply this. Think of at, in Mass, the consecration is when the priest prays the epiclesis with hands, palm side down, asking the Holy Spirit to change the bread and wine into Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit that brings Jesus. That's what consecration is. So consecration to Mary is that the Holy Spirit wants to bring Jesus into you and then form you into Jesus. But the Holy Spirit always does this through Mary because Mary makes present the maternal mission of the Holy Spirit to form Jesus in us. So consecration to Mary is just simply saying yes to the way in which God, the Holy Spirit, wants to form Jesus in us. And we see this scripturally from the very first moments, the wedding at Cana, which prefigures the transformation of bread and wine into the body and blood, with the transformation of water into wine. We see this at the visitation. You know, Mary is bringing Jesus into the hill country of Judah, just as the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament is brought into the hill country of Judah for three months. So it's that incredible Mary bringing people to Jesus and Jesus to people. And then at the foot of the cross, John 19, where Jesus says, Woman, behold your son, and to John, behold your mother. But the next line is the most important. And he took her for his own. His own mother. But in the Greek, it's, it's even more intimate. He took her into his interior life. Yeah. He, 
Yeah, he takes her into himself. Into himself. Just as the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us as in a temple. It's not just the Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit and Mary. So that the Holy Spirit and Mary can form Jesus in us. You know, there's a profound line in John Paul's letter on the rosary. Rosarium, paragraph 15, where John Paul says that in the rosary, the Holy Spirit mystically transports us to Mary's side as she's busy watching over the human growth of Christ in the home at Nazareth so that she can train us and mold us with the same care until Christ is formed in us. It's incredible. And you know, I think once, it's very easy to hear the idea of the church as the body of Christ as just a kind of a loose metaphor. That's not how the earliest Christians understood it. And it's frankly not how St. Paul presents it. He presents it as a very real sense in which the church is the continuation of the incarnation. And Mary, as the mother of the incarnation, is fittingly also the mother of the church. Yes. But we don't live really as if she's our mother. We Yes, we go to her when we need things. We don't really develop a relationship with her as a little child with its mother. And I find that there are actually many people who do consecration to Mary, but almost nobody lives the consecration. No one lives moment to moment, day after day, as if she is our mother. So imagine what the day of the little child Jesus would look like when he's two. You would always find him in the presence of Mary. We should live in imitation of Jesus, and we should learn to cultivate an awareness of the presence of Mary, turning to her for counsel, for for guidance, for protection, for care, for strengthening, but also for the one who will meet us in our way of the cross, who won't necessarily take the cross away, but will encourage us to go on. You know, Revelation 12, we talked about that earlier. It's depicted on the tilma. The last verse of the chapter, verse 17, describes those who hold to the testimony of Jesus and who follow the commandments of God as the other children of the mother of Jesus. Now, you can understand this as Mary, as the church, or both. But we're given a mother. And it's such a glaringly obvious point. Why? Did Jesus think it was necessary for Christians to have a mother in heaven if not to encourage this kind of docility in childlike relationship, to approach her as a mother so that we can grow in the very kind of smallness that we're talking about, that the children at Fatima, that, you know, Juan Diego here in Guadalupe, that this smallness is is where we find so much of the most amazing life-changing, world-transforming kind of things happening. The idea that a 57-year-old, not particularly educated, otherwise obscure person, 10 million people, convert as a result of his saying yes. Imagine what he could do to any of us. What Mary will do to any of us if we just have that same yes that she herself uh, exemplifies par excellence. At Fatima, Our Lady revealed God's plan for our alien world. For there she revealed that God wishes to establish in the world devotion to my Immaculate Heart, wanting to save it by these means. And Sister Lucia, through the years, kept asking Jesus, why why the Immaculate Heart of Mary? Why not your Sacred Heart? And Jesus revealed to her, I offered my Sacred Heart and the world has rejected it. I'm offering them the heart of my mother as my last effort. Maybe they won't reject the heart of my mother. When we look at our world, it's it's ailing, it's sick, it, it, it's hardened to Jesus. I think at this moment in history, we have to bring to the world the heart of their mother, who will then lead them to the heart of Jesus in the Eucharist. So maybe we feel small, inadequate, uh, 
tiny rope, a small ladder, a leaf, the tail the end. end of a tail, yeah, the tail end of a leaf. But yet, we can carry this message to people. You have a mother. So, we've talked a lot about the relationship of Mary and the Holy Spirit. And the image itself shows this incredible relationship between Mary and Jesus. That on the one hand, she's carrying him in her womb. And on the other hand, she's clasped her hands in prayer to him. So we always like to end these podcast episodes with a prayer. There's a prayer that I know you're particularly fond of. I'm hoping you can teach it to us, you can lead it. And maybe do it slowly so we can hear the profound insights about the relationship of Mary and the Holy Spirit. So it's the last thing we do. Let's close in this prayer. Well, this is an an ancient prayer written in about the middle of the 7th century, so about the year 650, written by St. Ildefonsus of Toledo, Toledo, Spain. You can actually find it in Pope Paul VI document, Marialis Cultus. I think it's paragraph 26, where he's summarizing the ancient Catholic belief on the relationship between Mary and the Holy Spirit. And this prayer of Ildefonsus, I beg you, Holy Virgin, that I may have Jesus from the Holy Spirit by whom you brought Jesus forth. May my soul receive Jesus through the Holy Spirit by whom your flesh conceived Jesus. And may I love Jesus in the Holy Spirit in whom you adore Jesus as Lord and gaze upon him as your son. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.